The following article from our Knowing and Doing Quarterly Journal is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our prayer is that this talk will help to deepen your faith and draw you closer to God. Bearing the Weight of Glory The Cost of C.S. Lewis's Witness by Dr. Christopher Mitchell, Director of the Marion E. Wade Center, Wheaton, Illinois. What is it that motivated C.S. Lewis, a comfortable academic with more than enough to do, to direct so much of his time writing and speaking toward the conversion of the unbelieving world? What made him sacrifice not only the regard of many of his colleagues, but his own academic advancement to defend the faith? The answer will no doubt appear quite obvious once it's stated, but since it says something important about Lewis and something quite profound about the human drama viewed through the lenses of the Christian faith, and because I do not recall anyone having yet called specific attention to the connection, I propose, though some have hinted at it, it seems appropriate to present the matter here. To state the case most plainly, the vividness by which Lewis perceived the potential eternal destinies of every man and woman compelled him to direct a great part of his energies toward the saving of souls. Lewis perceived evangelism to be his lay vocation, and the means by which he expressed this evangelistic impulse were through his writing and speaking. The particulars of his ministry are generally well known. However, a summary of them in the context of his life will be necessary in order to appreciate the significance of his motivation. Lewis's bent toward evangelism began to assert itself within the first year of his conversion in 1931. He felt it was the duty of every Christian, observed Owen Barfield, to go out into the world and try to save souls. In an essay on Christianity and culture, Lewis stated plainly that the glory of God, and as our only means to glorifying him, the salvation of the human soul is the real business of life. And in another place, he admitted that most of his books were evangelistic. Speaking of the fundamental difference between the Christian's and the unbeliever's approach to literature, and by extension to any of the great works of the human culture, Lewis said, without qualification, that the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. His vision for employing his own fiction as a means of evangelizing came quite unexpectedly and quite early. When, in 1939, Lewis became aware that most of the reviewers of his book Out of the Silent Planet failed to recognize its Christian theology, the idea struck him that the gospel could be smuggled into people's minds by means of fiction. It was a vision he sustained throughout his career. Less than six months before he died, in answer to the question asked by an American evangelical, would you say that the aim of your writing is to bring about an encounter of the reader with Jesus Christ? He replied, That is not my language, yet it is the purpose I have in view. Lewis, whose literary output was enormous, has been aptly called a literary evangelist. 
Before his death in 1963, he wrote 40 books and edited three. Since his death, nearly a dozen volumes of his essays have been published. In addition, he wrote thousands of letters, many of them published. Add to his writing, most of which was evangelistic, his speaking, praying, and discipling, and one begins to sense Lewis's enormous drive to save souls. It is important to notice, however, as Michael Ward has recently pointed out, that Lewis's brand of evangelism never involved the kind of direct appeal that bids people to come to Jesus. Lewis saw himself not so much as a reaper of souls, but one who prepares the soil, sows the seed, and weeds out what hinders growth. His job, as he understood it, was, on the one hand, to seek to break down the intellectual prejudices to Christianity by detecting and exposing the fallacies of current objections to belief in such a way as to make faith in Christianity intellectually plausible, and on the other, to prepare the mind and imagination to receive the Christian vision. His evangelistic genius was not in his ability to inspire faith, this he flatly disavowed, but to maintain an atmosphere where faith could be possible, rationally and imaginatively plausible, and where it could grow and even thrive. He was happy to prepare the way for those who were gifted to reap what had been sown, who could successfully bring the direct appeal to the heart. The well-known preacher Stephen Olford tells of an experience he had with Lewis during a This Is Life crusade held in London when he found himself on the same platform as Lewis. Lewis spoke first, brilliantly arguing, according to Olford, the case for Christianity before an audience of approximately 3,000. Following Lewis, Olford picked up on a motif that came through Lewis's message and used it to lead into his own message and ultimately to an invitation for an open commitment to Christ. After the meeting, Olford remembers Lewis coming right up to him, shaking his hand and saying, That was so impressive and effective. Thank you for that. I hope you didn't mind my taking up on what you said, replied Olford. No, said Lewis. That was magnificent. Lewis's prominence as a representative of the Christian faith began initially in 1940 with the publication of his book The Problem of Pain, rose in 1941 as a result of his series of broadcast talks over the BBC, and reached new heights with the publication of the Screwtape Letters in 1942. Other avenues for speaking of the faith included such diverse settings as talks to Britain's Royal Air Force, the weekly meeting of the Oxford University Socratic Club, Christian groups on university campuses, and the occasional sermon. A Hated Man Lewis's evangelistic impulse not only brought him public acclaim, but also created tensions and hostility among friends and colleagues. Owen Barfield, who was one of Lewis's closest friends, honestly admits that Lewis's zeal for the conversion of the unbeliever bothered, even embarrassed him at times. He could appreciate Lewis's faith as a private matter, 
but found it difficult to accept his determination to take it public with the aim of converting others. Barfield was not alone. The amount of ridicule and scorn it fostered among his non-Christian colleagues was especially virulent. His theological books and his standing as a Christian apologist, which made him much loved, also spawned a great amount of ill-feeling. According to Harry Blamires, Lewis was acutely sensitive to the fact. He recalls that Lewis once told him with great feeling, You don't know how I'm hated. One of the reasons for this hatred is that Lewis's use of his training as a scholar in the work of Christian apologetics was viewed by many of his colleagues as a form of prostitution. In an attempt to explain to Walter Hooper the reason for Lewis's unpopularity among so many dons in Oxford, J.R.R. Tolkien observed, In Oxford, you're forgiven for writing only two kinds of books. You may write books on your own subject, whatever that is, literature or science or history, and you may write detective stories, because all dons at some time get the flu, and they have to have something to read in bed. But what you are not forgiven is writing popular works, such as Jack did on theology, and especially if they win international success, as his did. Lewis's work on a popular level, which appealed to vast audiences outside the university, defied academic protocol. In the eyes of some, says Blaymeyers, he was using a donish knowledge to mesmerize the innocent masses with dialectical conjuring tricks. Moreover, he chose to express his faith in the vernacular, rather than in the language of the scholar. Although he did so in order that he might make the faith accessible to all, this was viewed by many in the university as a thing not proper to his profession. Besides, it was thought that a professor of English literature should teach literature, not theology. It appears that Lewis's growing fame as an amateur theologian contributed to his being twice passed over for appointments to much-coveted chairs in English literature at his university, despite his scholarly claim to the appointments. Some certainly objected to his Christianity in itself, but apparently also suspected, along with perhaps even some sympathetic colleagues, that his commitment to the salvation of human souls would not allow him the time to fulfill the duties and responsibilities the position would require. Lewis was himself, however, clearly uncomfortable with the publicity his success brought. As early as 1941, he was already feeling the sting of hostility and the crush of popularity. Responding to a point made by Dom Beatty Griffith in a letter in October of this year concerning his growing public persona, he acknowledges the growing tension within himself. As for retiring into private life, while feeling very strongly the evil of publicity, I don't see how one can. God is my witness. I don't look for engagements. A particularly burdensome outcome of this growing popularity was the ever-increasing amount of correspondence he felt obliged to answer. One of the reasons Lewis chose to terminate the radio broadcast talks was that 
he could not face the increase in the number of letters that would certainly be generated if he didn't. Already he was spending countless hours responding to the correspondence he was receiving. When describing in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, what he considered to be the perfect day, he made a special point of noting that an essential element of the happy life was that one would have almost no mail and never dread the postman's knock. Yet, the number of letters continued to increase as the years went on. There was a time, Lewis told a young correspondent in 1956, when he was apt to delay responding to letters. But that was when there were fewer of them. Now that I have such a lot to write, he said, I've just got to do them all at once, first thing in the morning. For unlike many in his position, Lewis felt a commitment to answer every letter that required a personal response. His brother, Warren, who in 1943 took on the role of secretary for his brother, routinely answered those letters not requiring Lewis's personal attention. Although there were moments when he complained about his vast correspondence, he continued the practice to the end of his life. A letter dated March 26, 1963, just a few months before his death, provides a vivid picture of both his reluctance and commitment to letter writing. The letter is addressed to Hugh, a young man, and the eldest of eight children, who had been corresponding with Lewis since 1954. Don't get any more girls to write to me, he wrote. Unless they really need any help I might be able to give. I have too many letters already. Lewis's Evangelistic Drive now, here is the question. Why did Lewis willingly persist in the kind of evangelistic activity that created obvious tensions and hardships in his personal and professional life and that increased an already heavy workload? He did not have to do so. He could have easily avoided such problems and still lived an active and fruitful, enormously fruitful Christian life. Admittedly, no single factor can account for Lewis's actions at any given moment, and certainly, in the case of his commitment to evangelize, several other factors could be suggested. For example, in one place, he explained his passionate and forceful defense of the Christian faith in terms of Dunn's maxim, The heresies that men leave are hated most. The things I assert most vigorously are those that I resisted long and accepted late. Yet I would propose that the primary driving force behind his evangelistic impulse is best summed up by his conviction that there are no ordinary people. The line comes near the conclusion of his sermon, The Weight of Glory, which was preached in Oxford at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin on June 8, 1941, coming when it did just about the time his ministry as a herald and defender of the Christian faith was taking off, the sermon may reasonably be assumed to express an early fundamental and guiding conviction. The sermon's beauty, force, and clarity seem to suggest this as well. Lewis began the sermon with the startling assertion that 
If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. He went on to argue that there is reason to believe that such infinite joy does in fact exist. Indeed, our deepest longings suggest it is so. At the moment, however, we are all on the wrong side of the door, leaving us with two possibilities. We can choose to be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored, or we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. But to get in, we must choose to follow Jesus Christ, who has opened the way, and who invites us to follow him inside. We have a choice. We walk every day, said Lewis, on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. Consequently, it is hardly possible, he concluded in the crowning paragraph of the sermon, to think too often or too deeply about my neighbor's potential glory. Lewis writes, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. A Burden of Glory Why was Lewis willing to sacrifice his own pleasure and comfort, risk alienating friends and colleagues, and jeopardize possible career opportunities? Because of the enormous magnitude and weight of the possible eternal destinies of human beings. A weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. According to Tolkien, Lewis knew the price of such popularity. He knew he would be hated, yet he was driven to write popular works of theology because of his conscience. Lewis was convinced that one of these two destinies was true for all humanity, 
and it compelled him to make the saving of souls the chief end of his earthly labors. To put it most plainly, Lewis preached what he believed and practiced what he preached. As he said to Dom Beatty Griffith in the same year he delivered this sermon, I don't see how one can do otherwise. This is not to say that Lewis never struggled with his commitment. He would have been happy to have avoided the public notoriety, nor that he felt himself more saintly than other Christians who did not share his sense of urgency in the matter. Rather, he simply did not see that he had a choice. The possibilities were plainly too momentous to be ignored. But Lewis did not do the work of evangelism simply out of a feeling of duty, either. It was, for him, also a labor of love. Dorothy L. Sayers gave memorable tribute to this side of Lewis's evangelistic person in a letter addressed to him in May 1943. Sayers had herself by this time become quite well known in Britain for her creative and effective presentation and defense of Orthodox Christianity. And, like Lewis, she had attracted a growing number of correspondents who wrote to her about religious concerns. Speaking of one particular pesky atheist, she wrote Lewis, Meanwhile, I'm left with the atheist on my hands. I do not want him. I have no use for him. I have no missionary zeal at all. God is behaving with his usual outrageous lack of scruple. If he reads any of the books I've recommended, he will write me long and disorderly letters about them. It will go on for years. I cannot bear it. Two of the books are yours. I only hope they will rouse him to fury. Then I shall hand him over to you. You like souls. I don't. Sayers recognized that Lewis liked souls in a way that she did not. In other words, viewed from the perspective of eternity, he worked sacrificially and without complaint for what he understood to be the soul's ultimate good. This is not to say that he liked all the people with whom he associated. Lewis was, as are the rest of us, possessed of a particular social disposition. Although he was typically pleasant and courteous to all those with whom he had contact, he maintained that his temperament was such that he tended to shy away from the company of others beyond the close circle of friends he maintained in and near Oxford. Nonetheless, in spite of the fact that Lewis did not always like people, he valued them enough to risk directing his unique talents and the majority of his energies toward their spiritual good. But heaven forbid we should work in the spirit of prigs and stoics, Lewis declared, writing of the ultimate purpose of love in his book, The Four Loves. While we hack and prune, we know very well that what we are hacking and pruning is big, with a splendor and vitality which our rational will could never of itself have supplied. To liberate that splendor, to let it become fully what it is trying to be, to have tall trees instead of scrubby tangles and sweet apples instead of crabs, is part of our purpose. In his fiction, Theology, Apologetics and Correspondence, Lewis can be seen hacking and pruning with the hope that his efforts might be used to produce everlasting splendors.
I am reminded of the vision expressed by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. We do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Although Lewis never refers to this text in the weight of glory, its spirit and truth pervade the work, and all his work. Lewis longed above all else for the unseen things of which this life offers only shadows, for that weight of glory which the Lord Christ won for the human race, and, knowing the extraordinary nature of every human person, Lewis longed for and labored for their glory as well. Thank you for listening. The C.S. Lewis Institute endeavors to develop disciples who will articulate, defend, and live their faith in Christ in personal and public life. This takes the form of discipleship programs, area-wide conferences and seminars, pastor fellowships, and resources in print and on the web. For more information about the C.S. Lewis Institute or to support this ministry, please visit our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org.